Open your Bibles, if you have them, to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 5. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 5 is where we'll be this morning. Uh, my wife is wonderful. My wife is sweet and kind. I have no complaints about my wife whatsoever. She is the most caring person that I know. She is totally surprised that I'm doing this right now. She is generous. She gives of her time and her affection. She is especially a great mom. All of you are sensing a butt coming, aren't you? There's no butt, no butt. However, <laughs> If you want to make her mad, if you want to see her upset, complain about the food that she's just made. I think we're probably all there. You spend time baking this food over a hot stove, and you put it on the table in front of your children. I think you can tell by looking at me, I'm never the one that complains about the food uh, at all. But you put it on the table in front of your children, and you hear complaints about what you provided, oh, that's hard to take. In fact, it's, it's upsetting. In fact, I think if you were to look up the definition of kids in the dictionary, it would be defined as such. The pickiest eaters that you have ever seen that you're in charge of feeding. That is the definition of a kid. The pickiest eaters you've ever seen that you're in charge of feeding. Kids aren't known for their sophisticated palates. In fact, our kids' palates are set on macaroni and cheese and any kind of sweet. Our house goes through more macaroni and cheese than you've ever seen. We single-handedly fund the macaroni and cheese industry out of our house. When you come to church in the morning, and the Word of God is opened in front of you, and it's talked about, it's devoured. What are the kinds of things that satisfy you? What are the kinds of things that increase your appetite for the Lord? When you devour the food of Scripture, what is your palate tuned to? This morning, we're going to be looking in our series on worship at God's Word. I'm preaching a sermon on sermons, if you can believe that. What is a sermon? What should we expect from it? Why do we come here and listen to it? Let's look at what the Scriptures tell us, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 4, 5. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. 
Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the, the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Join with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is on display in front of us now. But Lord, we require the help of your Holy Spirit to understand it and to truly hear so that we may obey. Lord, we ask that you build a congregation here that stands proudly on your word. Make us creatures of the word, seeking to inform all that we say, all that we think, and all that we do. Lord, I pray that you open our hearts so that we would not resist what you seek to tell us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. For those of you that might be joining us for the first time, I just want to take a step back and tell you where we've been. We're, we're pausing a study that we've been in for the last about a year and a half or so through the book of Matthew. We're not quite halfway through Matthew, but we've taken a pause there and stepped back, and we're looking at a series on worship. We're looking at what the Bible says about the elements of worship that we do on a weekly basis. So basically, we've gone down the list, or I've gone down the list, of the different things that we do that make up our worship service, and then each one have taken time on a Sunday to go through each one of those, look at what God's Word says about those, why we include those in our worship service, and what those things are supposed to really do for us. Now, thus far in this series on worship, we've looked at some of the foundational pieces of worship, namely uh, the worship that our worship must be to God the Father. That was the first week. Our worship must be to God the Father. Second, it must be through God the Son. It must be by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the last two weeks, we've considered two elements of our worship service, both singing and prayer. And what I would encourage you to do is if you miss any of those, just go back. If you intend on hearing the rest of the service especially, or the rest of the series especially, go back and listen to those, those sermons. I think they'll prepare you for the following week as each one builds on the other. Now this morning, we're looking at the sermon, the preached word of God. And I've entitled this sermon, The Main Meal for a Reason, but I want to give you four qualifications first before we get into this sermon. First, the sermon should be the main meal in every worship service, not only here, but it should be the main meal in every worship service. Second, the sermon is the main meal here regardless of if I'm preaching or not. The sermon is the main meal here, whether I'm preaching or not. So I want to be clear that what I'm not saying, I'm not making a statement about myself. The meal that the Christian is to feast on is not the preacher. The meal that the Christian is to feast on is the Word of God. So please don't hear me saying this morning that this is the main meal because of the way I do it or because something that I do is so special. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Regardless of who stands behind this pulpit, it should still be the main meal. Third, this isn't to disparage any other aspect of our worship service. 
We've talked about prayer and singing, but there's also giving, there's baptism, there's lots of other things that we do, and all of those are important every bit as much as a beverage is important to the meal. But we don't get confused, Dr. Pepper and steak. Both are important to a meal, but we don't get them confused. Fourth, lastly, and this is particularly for anyone that's visiting us this morning. We believe that the Bible is the inerrant and infallible Word of God. It is inerrant in its original manuscripts. It is infallible in its meaning. It leads us to truth, in other words. We adhere as a church body to the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And if you are so inclined, you can go to our website, you can look under resources, and you will find our belief statement. I'm sorry, that's under About Us. You will find our belief statement, and there you will find a link to the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. But I say that because that is the assumption that we take every Sunday when we read the Scriptures. So I'm not going to spend time this Sunday going through why we believe this is the inerrant, infallible word of God, although some of that may be in there. We're assuming as we come to the table, as it were, that the word that we are going to be devouring is the inerrant and infallible word of God. Okay, with that being said, there's two observations that I want us to see in this text on why preaching the scriptures is the main meal. First, the preaching of the scriptures feeds the sheep. The preaching of the scriptures feeds the sheep. Look at what he says there in verse 16, right out of the gate. First thing he says, all scripture is breathed out by God. The first thing that we need to notice about Paul's statement here in verse 16 is that the scriptures are associated with God's breath. Now, as far as we know, Paul has made up this word, God breathed. He has taken two words, God and breathe, and he has just crammed them together in one word. As far as we know, that is original to Paul. He is the first one to ever say this. But essentially what he's saying is that he's associating the scriptures, and he's saying the scriptures have their source in the breath of God. As breath passes over the vocal cords and words are breathed out by you or by me or anyone else who talks, so the scriptures that we are reading this morning are breathed out by God. So it's right and it's fitting that we should call the scriptures that are in front of us God's word. It's him talking. So, as the saying goes, if you want to hear God audibly speaking to you, open the Bible and read the words out loud, and you will hear God speaking to you. But over the millennia, God's word has come to humanity on a number of occasions and in a number of ways. And I think it's really helpful to think about just for a moment the way God's word has come to humanity. And I see in the scriptures about four different ways God has spoken to mankind. First, God has audibly spoken to mankind. There have been times in the past where a voice has boomed from the clouds and scared the daylights out of everybody who was there. But a voice booming from the clouds, God the Father, we saw that in Jesus' baptism, we see that in Jesus uh, on the Mount of Transfiguration, scares the disciples half to death. We've seen it several times throughout the Old Testament on Mount Sinai, in particular, where the people are so afraid they send Moses up the mountain to hear from God. But perhaps the most well-known time that God ever spoke, all of you are beneficiaries of it. And you know what it is. Surely you know what it is. God spoke on the first pages of Genesis and said, let there be light. 
God spoke and merely his words, his voice was enough to create everything that we see. There's such great power in his words that every atom came into existence by his mere speaking. So we see very early on the power of the word of God. The second, God's word came to us in the mouths of the prophets. God's word have come to us in the mouths of the prophets. See, there's an expectation that when God speaks, not only would galaxies come into being, but that God's words could shape his very people. He tells Jeremiah this. He says, I've put my words in your mouth so that when you stand and when you preach and when you proclaim, kingdoms will rise and fall at your speaking because my words are in your mouth. So the prophets could stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, because they have in their mouth his own very thoughts, his own very words. Third, God's word has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. John tells us in John 1.1 and John 1.14, should appear on the screen behind me, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory is the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, sometimes it's difficult to wrap our minds around that Jesus would be called the Word. What does that mean that Jesus is called the Word of God? What does it mean that Jesus is the Word? How can a person be a Word? Why does John call him the Word? Well, he tells us in verse 18 of the same chapter, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. So what we find is that Jesus is the Word because in the entire person of Jesus, the heart of God is made known. Everything that Jesus thought and did was truly an expression of God's own mind. In the same way that words should be an expression of your own mind and your own character and your own being and things like that, So Jesus himself expresses the entire nature of God. He is the very word of God. But then last, God's word has come to us in the pages of Scripture. Paul's telling Timothy, a young pastor, pastoring a congregation, he's telling Timothy here that the the words on these pages are breathed out by God. They are his very words. They're the very words of God himself. And what do we know about the words of God? As we've just seen, they create, they divide, they shape, they transform. Any time that God has spoken, whether it was in page one of Genesis in our Bibles, throughout the prophets, or in Jesus himself, where he redeems for himself a people and he condemns a whole host of others, like the Pharisees, what would we expect to be true of the scriptures if they were, in fact, the words of God? Well, Paul tells Timothy next. He says, they're profitable for teaching for reproof, 
for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. The Bible, as the Word of God, is the central piece that equips the person of God for every good work. It doesn't just tell you what they are. It enables you to do them. It produces in you a heart of affection for God. It's not just a rule book. It tells you a bunch of lists of things to do. I could do that. That's not what it does. It increases for you your affection toward God. Paul gives this instruction to Timothy twice, actually. First time is in 1 Timothy 4.13. He says, devote yourselves, yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. This is the reason that the church is to be devoted to the words of Scripture. It's the reason that we come together and we read the words on the screen. We repeat them to each other. The reason I'm opening the word right now and talking about what it means is because we're commanded to do so because these are the kinds of things. The words of God are the only things that can transform, that can grow, that can encourage, that can rebuke, that can exhort the people of God truly. In other words, the word does the work. The word does the work. And what Paul is telling Timothy here is, trust it. Just trust it. The Word does the work in shaping the hearts and minds of God's people. In our churches today, there seems to be a, a great deal of confusion about what the sermon actually is. Some people are convinced that the sermon is psychology hour, where the preacher gets up and he expounds on practical wisdom, like Dr. Phil, tells them all the things the ways they need to respond in all the many areas of life, in any and every situation. This is what you need to do when you come across these kinds of situations in your daily life. And that's it. These sermons you'll typically recognize because they are designed to pump you up. They're designed to energize you, get you ready for your week. Often what you'll see about these sermons is that as the psychologist masquerading as the preacher tells you what to do in these situations, he often gives you not one passage to examine, but many various verses along the way that sort of prove what he's trying to tell you. See, you, that job that you want, that's yours, and God wants you to have it. Why? How do I know? Look at Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. See, what did I tell you? It's right there in the text of Scripture. You're not told much about the context. You're not sure if the intention on the heart of the author when he sat down to write those words actually meant that. But supposedly that verse is supposed to give you that kind of assurance because that's what the psychologist just said. Others are convinced that as David Helm puts it, the preacher is an impressionist painter. And the sermon is the product of the impressions that he gets from the word that he reads and the connection to the scene around him or to the connection to the world around him. So the impressionist painter, he looks at a scene 
and then he captures it in his mind's eye, and he turns to his canvas, never returning back to the scene, and paints on his canvas exactly what's in his mind's eye. And he gives to you exactly what he wants you to know about that scene. And so the impressionist preacher looks at the text of Scripture. He sees immediate and relevant impressions of the world around him and develops his sermon on those applications. The text really isn't examined in extensive detail, and not every word is scrutinized, just the relevant bits that help you see his alliterated points. These sermons will usually result in a plethora of how-tos, not exclusively how-tos, but a lot of how-tos, how to volunteer, how to have a better marriage, how to raise your children. David Helm, in his book, Expositional Preaching, demonstrates this approach by using example of Hannah and Eli in 1 Samuel 2. The Impressionist preacher might preach from this text on raising your children just like Hannah does instead of how Eli does. Well, how do you know what they did? How do you know how to raise your children? Well, look at Eli. Eli lets his children do whatever they want. He lets them eat wherever they want and whatever and however much they want. Don't be like him. Don't don't parent your children like him by letting them do whatever they want. That's how to be a bad parent. Instead, parent like Hannah, who raised her son Samuel in the church. Therefore, if you want to be a good parent, what do you do? Raise your children in the church just like Hannah. Now, many of us have grown up on impressionist preaching as it's so common in our churches, some of us may not even have known that that's what we're hearing because most of the time it claims to be biblical preaching. Well, I preached out of 1 Samuel, didn't I? We read the text of Scripture, didn't I? It's biblical preaching. It uses a passage of Scripture for its justification. But have you heard countless sermons? But after many years... You still feel like you've just never really gone deep enough in your study of Scripture? Most likely, it's because you've been cutting your teeth, not on the words of Scripture, but on the impressions of a preacher. Both of these approaches actually undermine the authority of Scripture that we so claim to uphold. The actual words of Scripture and the correct understanding of those words takes a back seat to what the pastor has in mind to say. Even before he gets into his study on Monday morning. But you see that if the Scriptures are really breathed out by God, if they're profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness and for equipping you for every good work, then what happens when a pastor gives you a sermon that whose, whose te- the, the meaning isn't derived from the meaning of the words or from their context? What happens when a pastor does that? Well, then you're not equipped. You're not trained for good works. You're not corrected in your thinking. Because you've heard the words of the preacher rather than the actual meaning of the text of the Scriptures. So then, we have to ask ourselves during the sermon, in a sermon like that, 
Is the passage there in 1 Samuel, is the author really sitting down at his writing desk? And he thought to himself, I really want to teach them how to be better parents. How do I do that? (gasps) Got it. I'll give them the story of Hannah and Eli. That's how I'll teach them how to be better parents. I think most of us would think that's preposterous. Of course he didn't do that. What if instead I told you that the book of 1 Samuel is showing God replacing the leadership of his people who are leading the people to worship him wrongly with people that are going to lead them to worship him truly. First, we see it in Eli, who is leading the people to worship God wrongly and has led his own sons to worship God wrongly. So what happens to Eli? He dies on the same day as his sons. Eli and all his lineage perish on the same day, and he is replaced by Samuel. What if then I told you that Saul, at the end of the book, dies? And do you know who dies with him? All of his sons on the same day. And he is replaced by David. As Helm points out, the passage in 1 Samuel 2 is about how bad leadership of God's people makes a mockery of God himself. See, that's an entirely different message than how to be a better parent. But it's it's one that makes sense of the author's actual intent. Why he's using the story in the way he's using the story. How that's supposed to benefit the audience as they consider what it means to worship God truly and how to follow people who are actually leading them to worship God truly. How to evaluate better leadership because they're the ones that lead you to worship God truly. See, when interpreted rightly and demonstrated in front of God's people, it feeds them. It nourishes them. It equips them. The sermon, when dealing with the text of Scripture, is the main meal of the congregation because God's words are the only thing that can sustain, that can encourage, that can rebuke, and that can build the Christian to maturity. That's it. Second thing that I want you to see in Paul's words here is that the preaching of the Scriptures starves the imposter. The preaching of the scriptures starves the imposter. So what is the command then to Timothy? He tells him at verse 1, I charge you. He tells him this is what's coming is a command. Listen to it this way. And he says, look in verse 2 where he gets to the command. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The function of the sermon is to analyze the actual text that's sitting in front of us and to talk about it, what it, what it means. When we analyze the text, that means looking into the past. How do, we, how do we understand what the author's intent is? Here, we're doing all of those kinds of things as we analyze the text and we talk about what it means and why it actually then matters to us. By the way, Timothy knows this. We know that Timothy knows this because Paul has been reminding him in the context of our passage exactly what he knows about the Word of God. He's been telling Timothy, people are going to leave. People's hearts are fickle. 
When it comes to listening to sound doctrine, people don't really want to do it, it turns out. And they'll not hear what you're wanting to say. But Paul tells him in verse 10, if you look there, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching. You know better. You followed my teaching. And then he tells him in verse 15, From childhood, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He told him back in chapter 1 that his grandmother and his mother have cared for him so deeply as to teach him from these words. So scripture has been taught to Timothy since he was little. He knows this. So Timothy knows the effect that, these script, that the scriptures have on the man of God because it's, it's true of him. And so Paul tells him, do that. Just as you have grown by hearing the word of the scriptures read and hearing them taught rightly as to what they really mean, do that for your congregation and let the word do the work. Give them the same thing. Because there's only one thing that can build a congregation that can equip them for holiness and good works and that is the preached word of God. That's not to belittle the other things that the pastor does. Of course, there's many things that go into a job description of a pastor, but his foremost responsibility as laid out in the scriptures themselves is to preach and to study to preach. His foremost responsibility because without the preached word the congregation will wither away now when i say that the congregation will wither away probably a lot of us have in our minds numbers that the congregation will shrivel up and die and that people will will leave because the word is not being preached actually the opposite is often true paul tells him in verse three for the time is coming When people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. In this passage, I think there are three responses to the preaching of God's Word. I think Paul lays out three responses that Timothy is going to see in his ministry. The first one we've already seen is that the child of God, the man of God, is built to maturity. That's clear. That's in the first part of the text. The second response is that the pretenders, the imitators, the people posing as Christians will cut out the preacher who is preaching sound doctrine. They'll cut him out of their lives and will instead flock to people who aren't preaching the word. People that are preaching perhaps the other ways that I've already outlined. The impressionist pastor, the psychologist. There's no endurance for sound teaching. So instead what they'll do is they'll gather for themselves teachers who will scratch a different desire. Occasionally that'll be false doctrine. Occasionally that'll simply be light teaching. This teaching that's light on doctrine and heavy on a little bit more entertainment. You want to preach? That's fine. I can understand when you have to do that, but don't make me feel like it's doctrine. Make it light. Don't make it boring. Make it a little bit funny. Throw some humor in for goodness sakes. Give me something to laugh about. I don't want to know that I'm being preached to. 
And for goodness sakes, don't make me feel so bad. The third reaction, I think it's subtle, but I think it's there in verse 5. Subtle, but I think it's implied there, if not explicitly stated. The lost will come to repentance. The lost will come to repentance. That's what he means, I think, when he tells Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. I don't think that specifically means go out on the street corner and share the gospel, though I don't think that's bad, and I'm not saying that the preacher isn't obligated, just like every Christian is, to share the gospel with people that they meet. Of course we are. That is the obligation of every Christian. But the main work of evangelism that the pastor does is going to be from the pulpit, where people who are curious about the gospel, people are curious about Christ, occasionally present themselves in the service during the preaching of the word. They hear what it means to be a Christian and what it means to follow Christ. But I want you to notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, through your preaching, tons of people will come to know Jesus. That's not what he promises Timothy. He acknowledges that, Timothy, during your ministry, people will wander away. A lot of people are going to flee. But what does that mean for you? Fulfill your ministry. What does it mean for him to fulfill his ministry? It's what he just told him. Preach the word. Preach the word and let God worry about the consequences. The reality that I think Paul is speaking to is that there's a temptation that every pastor feels, every single one of us feel. When people leave, you think to yourself, what didn't I do? What could I have done to grab their attention, maybe? Could I have done something different that would have appealed to them in some way? Paul's encouragement to Timothy is fight the temptation to change the preaching of the word based on the culture around you. Many will leave. But sound doctrine, the gospel that's in front of you, The words of God, if they really are the words of God, are the only thing that's fitting to build people up, to encourage the man of God, and to equip him for every good work. So stick to that. When we gather around the word on a Sunday morning, we come here into this congregation, we don't come here to listen to me or to anyone else that may be standing here on a Sunday morning. In the Bible are the words of God that he has taken care to preserve for his people since he put them down on paper to begin with. We're coming to hear from him. See, we're not altogether different from that crowd that gathered around Mount Sinai and heard the cracking of the sounds of thunder of God's voice coming from afar. They were so terrified by his voice that they sent Moses up to intercede on their behalf. We're not altogether different than that group. What our goal should be is to read God's actual words before his people and then understand a sense of what they mean that often involves a connection with other parts of Scripture. Diving into the Old Testament sometimes, connecting to deeper things that you may not have been aware of. 
Sometimes it involves a deep word study about things that are really important for you to understand here. Sometimes it involves a little bit of church history, and it always involves an explanation of theology, like what does the word of God mean, and how has it come to us in history? We don't want to take these words out of their context so that I just read, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And though I'm four foot 11, I walk out of this door thinking I can be an NBA basketball player. Why? Because Philippians 4.13 has told me, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Brother, I got bad news for you. NBA basketball is probably not in your future. But who knows? (laughs) Instead, we should understand that we can be content in poverty, which is what Paul's actually saying there. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can be content no matter what is coming my way. I can be content if I'm rich. I can be content if I'm poor. I can be content in the midst of suffering because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. But the analyzing of God's actual words will prove unbearable for some. And what they will do instead is seek out teachers who don't preach it, whose teaching is much more soothing to their ears. But if the sound of God's words are merely soothing to your ears, you need to ask yourself the question, are those God's words that I'm actually hearing? If if they're always soothing... If they always confirm my opinion, are those God's words? Or are those my words coming back to me in an echo? It's worth asking if the Bible doesn't upset me from time to time, if the Bible doesn't change my opinion, if the Bible doesn't correct me in my wrong thinking, maybe you think you're God. Because these words can't change you. How does this text then apply to us? Well, as I said, I think there's three people in here. One is the child of God. Are you a child of God? Are you a follower of Christ? Do you deeply value His word that is before you, that is likely sitting in your lap or on your phone? What place does it hold in your life? In spite of what God's words say, do you ever find yourself thinking that you want something more? Something deeper? Maybe something different? Do you ever encounter God's words and you think, eh, I wish that said something different? To be honest, I don't really care. We've been through a six-week-long study on worship. Have we encountered anything in there that you've said, yeah, I see that in God's word, but I just really don't like it. I really don't care. If you're a child of God, then I would say to you, repent of that way of thinking. Repent. Instead, conform yourself to his word. Submit to it. Trust him. Trust his word to build you up and to strengthen you. Are you an unbeliever? Perhaps you are not a follower of Christ. Perhaps you're not convinced that he is the only way to heaven or that there even is a heaven. 
then I would challenge you to think about why God's word has come to humanity so many times to so many people. Consider for just a second that God did not have to speak, but he did. He crafted for himself a people at Sinai. Why? Because he is holy and they are not. And he knows that fallen humanity cannot save themselves. And so he speaks to them. He reveals himself to them. He gives them his law and his word. But you know, we're so sinful that we can't obey it fully. In fact, the Bible tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. There's no way that we could obey it. So what did he do? Well, he sent his word in flesh to die for us, to bear on his shoulders the wrath that you and I deserve, wrath for sinning against him. He died for you so that by belief you could have eternal life. So I ask you, why has God cared so much to speak to you? Is it to condemn Why has he spoken to you through preachers over the years or through the Bible, his very word? Is it to simply condemn you and to send you to hell or or tell you that there is a way out and to offer you salvation in his son? Salvation that can only be found in Christ and Christ alone. So to you, I would say, repent of your sin. Confess Christ as Lord and turn from them. The third person is an imposter. Are you simply wanting to be soothed by the words? Have you cut your teeth on ice cream and that's all your appetite demands is ice cream? What would you expect God's words to sound like if you were to hear the audible voice? Would you you expect them to sound easy to understand and sound pleasing to your ear? Or do you think they would sound like cracks of thunder that would leave you terrified that he was going to kill you like they did in Deuteronomy? Do you expect that God's words would be easy to live by? That there wouldn't be anything hard in there that would question your assumptions? Do you constantly tell yourself and maybe the preacher underneath your breath, just tell me what to do. Just give me some practical examples. Just cut from the meal and give me the dessert already. Tell me what you want me to do. See, doing that when God's words are on the table is akin to God providing the food that you need for nourishment and then griping about how he's delivered it to you and the way he's delivered it to you. So to you, I would say, repent. Confess to the Lord your dissatisfaction with his actual words. Conform yourself to them. Submit to them and their instruction. Read them in your daily life as if they are God's very words that he has spoken and that have been recorded for your benefit for your growth, for your edification, for your correction and rebuke. And enjoy the growth that results. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for our reverence over your word. 
that we would truly come to value the text of scriptures that we hold in our hands. We take it for granted. We put it on a shelf. We won't see it again until next Sunday. Disrupt that way of thinking, Father. In my own life, with my own patterns, with my own behaviors, with my own thoughts, and everybody else is in this room as well. Disrupt our way of thinking. Allow us a deep longing, a craving for the deep meat of Scripture. Allow us, Lord, to trust it for our growth, for our benefit, for our health, for our vitality. Make us demand it as a church body that we stand on the words of Scripture. That what's in here has the final say in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.